Well, today is our second message of three that are centered around Advent today. As we talked about last time, the word Advent, it means coming. And when we use that term Advent in the Christian sense, in the theological sense, we mean the coming, not just in general, but the coming of Christ, the coming of Jesus to this world. Specifically, we're talking about at this season, the birth of Jesus, his first advent. There's going to be a second advent. We know that from Scripture. He's coming back again to this earth. And he's not going to be born again as a baby. He's going to come to rule and to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen to that. Come, Lord Jesus, is what I say. Now, last week, the, uh, the first Advent message was entitled, The Promise. And we talked about some of the details surrounding this promise by God to send the Savior. And at one point, we just very simply tried to make the point that he was indeed promised. This wasn't plan B or C or D by God. To send his son. This was plan A, his plan from the very beginning. When man rebelled and brought down the whole human race as well as the entire creation, right then, very quickly, right after that, in his grace, God promised to send a Savior. Isn't that amazing? And what are those promises but just the grace of God on display? Just as soon as man rebelled, I'm sending one who's going to crush Satan's head. He didn't have to think about it for a thousand years, and God was mad, you know, and I got to think about whether I want to save this people or not. No. From eternity past, he had already decided. He loved us before the world began, and he already had this in his mind. This was planned out before time began, before matter existed, before time existed, before anything existed, this was in the mind of God. To turn this entire sin disaster around for his glory and for our good. Amen to that. What a joy it is to know that God had thought up this genius plan of redemption way before anything even existed. Isn't that a joy to us? And he promised his people all along that he was going to rescue them. And he even goes so far as to give them certain laws and ceremonies that would paint a picture before their eyes. This is what it's going to be like. They take the lamb and they slaughter these lambs and they have this instituted sacrificial ceremony that the the people of Israel go through. That way they would understand better what's coming and that we would understand better what's, what has come. He would be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And all those things were enhanced by all those foreshadowing details. Praise God for them. Now today, let's move on from the promise to talk about the actual arrival Of this promised one. It's just called today the arrival. And my aim again, just so you know, 
is to just remind you of how the Lord Jesus entered this world. And I just want these, these truths to stir your heart, to stir your heart toward better worship, better adoration of the Lord, amazement at his coming. And I quoted John Piper last week, and I'll repeat that quote again because it's pertinent to our goal in this entire little series. He said, what you and I need is usually not a brand new teaching. Brand new truths are probably not truths. What we need are reminders about the greatness of old truths. We need someone to say an old truth in a fresh way. Or sometimes just to say it. (laughs) So let me just remind you of some old truths this morning with the hopes that the Spirit of God will cause your worship of Him to be kindled this morning, okay? So take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 2 if you're not already there. And we're going to read about His arrival, Let's read today Luke 2, verses 1, all the way down to verse 21, okay? This is what the Word of God says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths And laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good noise, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. 
But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Amen. What a crazy set of events. We've heard it our whole lives, probably, but let's not look past how amazing this story is. I'd like to look at five aspects of this arrival. So first of all, let's look at a lowly place, a lowly place. If God had put you in charge of the plan to bring his son into the world, would this be how you would draw it up? <laughs> Is this how you would imagine the coming of the king of kings to take place? Remember, this is the creator of the whole universe we're talking about. What kind of entrance would you give him? Doesn't it seem like a, a strange way to do it? And yet God chose to do it this way. There's beauty here. There's mystery here. Let's look at some of it. <clears throat> First of all, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, he lived in the town of Nazareth, according to verse 4. Nazareth was a town in the region of Galilee, which was in the northern part of Israel, and it was not a place where you would expect to find important or notable people at all. In fact, Nazareth was kind of looked down upon if you remember in John chapter 1, Philip, when they first found Jesus, Philip goes to Nathanael and said, We've found him, of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And he's saying, We've found the Messiah. And Nathanael says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip doesn't even argue with that. He just says, come and see. Come and see. And these men join Jesus as his disciples, and the rest is history, really. But Nazareth was not a good place of good reputation or, or wealth or power or high social status. It was lowly, a lowly place. That's where Jesus' family was, was from. What about Bethlehem? Was it a big, illustrious place? Well, King David was born there years and years prior, but that's about all it was famous for, really, until this. This wasn't a huge metropolis of intellectual power and riches and fame. This wasn't a big capital city somewhere. This was a small, out-of-the-way place. In fact, the prophet Micah, said this about Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This was a lowly, ordinary place, and yet, it's right here in Bethlehem that God planned for his son 
to be born. He was born in a lowly place. His family lived in a lowly place. Number two, Jesus came into the world through a lowly family. We just talked about how Joseph and Mary were from the town of Nazareth, which is not a prominent place, but what else do we know about his family? His father, his earthly father, was a government official, right? Was he a member of a big council somewhere? Was he a member of the religious leaders, a religious authority of some kind? Was he a king of some sort? Was he a CEO of a big company around that area? Surely he was some kind of important guy, right? He's going to raise the son of God. Who is he? He was a carpenter. He was a normal, everyday worker, a worker of wood. So Jesus was born into a poor family. This wasn't Joseph, the owner of some massive lumber yard or carpentry powerhouse. This was Joseph, the lowly carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee. And we read later in this chapter that when it's time for um, Mary's purification after childbirth, they bring Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord like the law of Moses prescribed, and they brought their sacrifice. And what was it? It was two turtle doves or pigeons. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, if we look back, we won't take time to flip there, but let me, let me bring you up to speed if you're not aware. In Leviticus chapter 12, when God gave these laws concerning the purification after childbirth, the law stated that after a certain amount of time, the family would bring a sacrifice to the priest at the tabernacle, and it says... In Leviticus 12, 8, that if they could not afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Jesus' family brought, as a sacrifice, the animals that were stipulated for poor people, people who couldn't afford a lamb. Isn't that amazing? They had the Lamb of God. In their arms, but they couldn't afford a lamb to sacrifice. Again, is this how you would draw it up? Our instincts tell us different. As important as this Jesus is and was, the Son of God, the one whom the entire world was created for, according to Colossians 1.16, he should be born into the world with flair, with ceremony with celebration instead he's born in an unknown place to an unknown poor family this is exhibit a for the type of humility that our lord would exemplify throughout his entire life the humility of jesus i love michael card's song entitled joseph's Song, and as the title would indicate, it's written from the perspective of Joseph. The chorus of it says, Father, show me where I fit into this plan of yours. How can a man be father to the Son of God? Lord, for all my life I've been a simple carpenter. How can I raise a king? 
How can I raise a king? The mystery, the beauty, the humility here in, the, in this arrival is just overwhelming. We have the king of everything born into a peasant family, son to a carpenter, into a young peasant girl. How many of you held a baby in your arms before? Most of us, hopefully. Bob's got two arms up. He loves holding babies. It's a unique experience, isn't it? Holding a baby, this tiny little human being just looking at him. Can you imagine being Joseph or Mary and looking down at this little baby and knowing that you were holding God in your arms. There must have been a mixture of awe, happiness, mixed with, what am I doing? Inadequacy, maybe, fear. How can we raise this child? Lord, you said he was the savior of the world. You said he was the Messiah. How are we supposed how are we supposed to raise this child? How's this supposed to work? I'm just a carpenter. I'm just a teenage girl. What do we have to teach him? It's daunting being a parent of any child, isn't it? But this, this is on another level right here. What a profound mystery the incarnation of Christ is. And I just want us to worship at his feet. Number three, he had a lowly frame. The Son of God entered this world not riding on a war horse, not riding in a fancy chariot, not riding in a gold-plated carriage while people carried him with sticks with a large entourage. He didn't have bodyguards. He came into the world just like every other human being has ever entered the world, through the womb of a woman. Just like any baby, he would have came out crying. He would have came out bloody, Hungry, the whole nine yards. Unable to take care of himself or anyone else, humanly speaking, yet he was somehow, according to Hebrews 1.3, upholding the entire universe by the word of his power. What a mystery this is. What a mind blower this is. And they wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. A manger is where the cattle feed gets poured into. Where the cow lowers her head and slobbers and eats. The first place to host the Messiah was a cattle stall. The inn was full. Understandably so. We can't paint the innkeeper as some villain he was just full. Everybody was coming to be registered. All the rooms were full. And so 
The way it ended up, though, is that the one who deserved more than any other human being on the face of the earth was laid in a feeding trough made for animals while others laid comfortably in pallets or beds or some other suitable lodging. There were sinners sleeping in comfortable quarters while the Savior sleeps in an animal stall. Blows my mind that this is how God would orchestrate this. There's a theologian in the 4th century by the name of Jerome. He said this, He found no room in the holy of holies that shone with gold, precious stones, pure silk and silver. He's not born in the midst of gold and riches, but in the midst of dung. In a stable where our sins were filthier than the dung. He is born on a dung hill in order to lift up those who come from it. And he quotes Psalm 113.7 that says, From the dung hill he lifts up the poor. Mm. Profoundly mysterious and glorious to think about the paradox of Jesus being in the form of a human infant and yet simultaneously being Lord of heaven and earth. I'd like to read you another quote by another old theologian. His name is Augustine. It's kind of a longer quote. Bear with me and listen to what he says. The word of the Father, by whom all time was created, was made flesh and was born in time for us. He, without whose divine permission, no day completes its course, wished to have one day set aside for his human birth. In the bosom of his father, he existed before all the cycles of ages. Born of an earthly mother, he entered upon the course of the years on this day. The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst. That he, the light, might sleep. That he, the way, might be wearied by the journey. That he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge. That he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust that he, the teacher, might be scourged with whips, that he, the vine, might be crowned with thorns, that he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that strength might be weakened, that he who makes well might be wounded, that life might die. To endure these and similar indignities for us, to free us unworthy creatures, he who existed as the Son of God before all ages without a beginning deigned to become the Son of Man in these recent years. He did this, although he who submitted to such great evils for our sake had done no evil. And although we, who were the recipients of so much good at his hands, had done nothing to merit these benefits, 
begotten by the Father. He was not made by the Father. He was made man in the mother whom he himself had made so that he might exist here for a while, sprung from her who could never and nowhere have existed except through his power. End quote. That is a weighty quote. And I just ask again, what is this but the most profound display of humility and grace that you and I have ever heard of? The highest became low for the low. The rich, the riches of heaven is what he left. The rich became poor for the poor, us. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Spiritual riches is what we have in Christ. What a Savior, what a plan. Another songwriter wrote, This is such a strange way to save the world. Indeed it is, isn't it? To the human mind and the normal way of thinking, this was surely a strange way to do it. And yet, a thing of beauty, isn't it? Let's look at another aspect of this lowly arrival. Number four, a lowly audience. Again, if it were up to you and I to take care of logistics, who would be the first to know about the coming of the Messiah? Maybe we'd Notify what? Every major news outlet. Let's notify them first, right? Uh, Maybe we'd notify all the offices of all the world leaders. Maybe government officials, maybe presidents, congressmen, senators, kings, queens, barons, lords, prime ministers, whatever. Big shots. Let's notify them so they can disseminate all this information. Let's get to them first, right? We need to get everything out, so let's start at the top. Is that how God did it? What did we just read? Who got the message first besides Mary and Joseph? Was it the religious leaders of the day? Was it the high priest at the time? Was it Caesar? Was it Herod? Who was it? Read with me again in verse 8. And in the same region there were what? Shepherds. And verse 9 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The shepherds. Let me tell you how shepherds were thought of at the time. According to Jewish historical information that we have, shepherds were just about as low of an occupation as you could get. A third century rabbi that was commenting on this, he said... There is no more despised occupation in the world than that of shepherds. And in Jewish literature, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, herdsmen or shepherds were regularly listed among other despised trades like gamblers and tax collectors. Shepherds, they're, you know, they're constantly dwelling out in the fields, out away from society and culture. These were not cultured people. And people were very suspicious of them. 
And their reputation was so bad that it actually disqualified them from being a legal witness in court. Shepherd couldn't be a witness. Nobody believed them. And yet, on the night of Jesus' birth, who was it that was singled out to be the first to hear about it? It was shepherds. It was as if God was saying, my son has come for everyone. He's here for the lowly. Think of that angel, the angel who came and appeared to the shepherds that night. He's, he's in heaven, perhaps. He's serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord, doing all the things he was created by God to do in heaven, and he gets this assignment of God. Tonight's the night. This is the night of nights. Jesus is going down there to save my people. I want, to, I want you to go announce it. And the angel says, yes. Maybe he burst into praise. And maybe he said, my Lord, where should I go to announce your son's birth? Which mountain should I go to? How loudly do you want me to announce this? Surely you want me to go to the biggest possible place and and get all the influencers involved, right? The ones with the most influence should know first, right, Lord? I mean... Let's be efficient with this thing, right? That's how it works nowadays. You know, we have a people we refer to today as influencers. What do you do for a living? I'm an influencer. <laughs> I don't have any problem with that. It's an opportunity to take, I guess, in our internet age. But these are people who've gained a large following on one or more of social media platforms, right? Maybe they have a couple million YouTube subscribers, so... Companies are going to give them free things. As long as you push it on your channel and kind of recommend us, we'll give you free stuff. And they're considered an influencer. Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever other ones you don't know about and I don't know about. And when something goes viral, right, it's usually because an influencer shared it, right? Maybe some lesser known person took the picture or said what they said, but then it was shared by another person with a large following, and it goes viral. As soon as it goes viral, boom, everybody knows about it then, right? Have you seen that video? Oh, yeah, I saw that video. It's going all over all the world, right? But interestingly, God did not pick the influencers of this time to make the announcement to. He picked the total opposite of influencers. He picked the ones who had no influence, the lowest of the low. Again, as if to say to the whole world for all time, the Savior is for you, anyone. As a matter of fact, that's how the angel worded it in verse 11. He's talking to the shepherds and he says, for unto you is born this day a Savior. In verse 10, I bring you good, no, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. He's for you. Go to him. And he didn't have to command them either. He just says, you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And verse 16 says, they hightailed it to find him. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, it says. Now, I don't know about you, but I am glad that the Savior came for lowly people. Are you? 
I don't think anybody in this room that I know of is famous for much of anything. I don't know of anyone in this room that has any great earthly power or influence. We're not big shots, in other words. But God is pleased to send his son for the nobodies like you and me. He came for the outcast. He came for us. And throughout all the earthly ministry of Jesus, he always had people like that on his mind. Always. He ministered to common people, to the poor, to the needy. And he attracted those kind of people who were outcast in, the, in society. He came for sinners. That's the bottom line. He came for sinners. That is the spiritual equivalent of this. He came for sinners, which is really everybody, but you got to be low to know you're a sinner, right? He didn't come for people who think they're good or well already. He came for the sick. We read in Luke 5, you know, Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling about that. And they, they asked him, and Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. It's the sick who need me, not the ones who think they're well, he said. By the way, that's what the church is. It's a place for the sick who want to be well. It's not a place for people who think they're already well, right? It's a place for the broken. It's a place for the repentant. And just as a side note, have you noticed that the Bible has really no good news for the unrepentant? The good news is only good news to those who repent. I really have nothing good to say to you today unless you are repentant. Until a person just comes to the end of themselves and realizes they're an absolute wreck before God. I have nothing hopeful to say. However, for the repentant, there is truly good news. There is peace. There is rest. There is comfort. There is restoration. There is forgiveness. There is reconciliation with God. So for the unrepentant, those who think they're well, I have nothing but bad news. And I think this is one reason why God chose to reveal his good news first to these lowly shepherds. To demonstrate the type of person that this good news is for. It's for the lowly, the despised, the ones who knew they needed a physician. I think of 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to this passage. It reminds us of who Jesus came for. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26... For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. End quote. The Lord is so gracious. He doesn't work his way from the top down. He starts at the bottom. A lowly place, a lowly family, a lowly frame, a lowly audience. And finally, as I close today, the last point. In contrast to these, an exalted God. All the points this, thus far have started with the word lowly. However, when we read what happened on this hillside outside Bethlehem with these shepherds, we realize how glorious and God exalting all these lowly things really were. Look at what happened. Initially, there was one angel who appeared to them and told them this good news, but verse 13 is like a rising crescendo of this piece right here. Read it again with me, verse 13. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Mm. The word host there in English, it comes, it's a Greek word translated host, but the Greek word is stratia, which means army. Think of this scene. Here comes the angel appearing to the shepherds at night. It's just one angel at first. And this one angel was so gloriously bright, shining all around them that they were terrified, it says. Apparently the sight of just one of these magnificent creatures that God called angels is enough to render tough guys like shepherds scared out of their mind says they were filled with great fear. Not just a little scared, they were mortified. And beautifully, the first words out of the angel's mouth from God were, fear not, don't be afraid. Why? Because he has good news, not bad news. He has good news of great joy for all the people. Don't greatly fear, be greatly happy, he says. I have good news from God. And he tells them about this baby as we discussed earlier. And then suddenly, there's not just one angel. There's a massive army of angels right there before them. These are angel warriors. And just to give you an idea of the power of, of one angel, in 2 Kings 19, we're told that one angel killed in one night 185,000 Assyrian warriors by himself. And here was an entire army of these powerful beings. It was the angel army of heaven right there before them. And ironically, they're not shouting war cries. Their cry is peace. It's an army deployed for peace rather than war. 
Their cry is glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. What a scene this must have been. In all these lowly things that were happening on this night, they might have gone unnoticed at the time. There were plenty of people that didn't know what was going on right under their noses in Bethlehem, and there were certainly untold millions of people who lived nowhere near this that had no clue what was going on in this little town in northern Israel. But the significance of what was happening could not have been greater. This lowly arrival was the arrival of God. God was being exalted here. God was being praised. God was being glorified. I'm glad little things can be glorious. Are you? I'm glad God uses little things. I'm glad God uses little people. I'm glad God uses little churches. We sometimes sing the song, little is much when God is in it, right? And on this night, God was very much in it. This was the beginning step of his redemptive plan that was coming to fruition. God was exalted this night, and he was going to be exalted in the future because of this night by people from every tribe and nation and tongue that will be around his throne, saved by the grace of Christ. They will be worshiping him for all eternity because of what happened here. But ironically, on this night, hardly anyone knew what was going on. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? These things just, again, ought to stir our affections for Christ, that he would choose to forego all the pomp and splendor that other earthly kings receive, that he would choose to come lay in a slobber-filled feeding trough. The arrival was lowly, but the glory was incredible. The question is, do you and I see it? Do you and I feel it? Do you see the beauty of what happened on that night? Do you see the significance of what happened on that night? This isn't just some heartwarming story that we put in children's books, right? This is the hinging point of all of human history. And what you and I think of this baby in the manger, that will determine our eternal destination. If we see him as he's presented in the pages of Scripture, and we believe, we'll have eternal life. If we just see him as another baby, nice story, heartwarming But just another baby who was born in another small town will miss out on eternal life because we'll miss the very one who is the one who can save us. This baby would grow up, live the life that you and I could never live. Had God gave us a thousand lives to try to live right, we would fail every time. And he comes to live the life we never could have lived. We need this baby, don't we? We need this baby who grew into the man, the God-man, who would die on a Roman cross and take the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could go free.
I hope you're trusting in him today. He brought peace to a world full of trouble, pain. And he gives this peace freely to all who will come to him. My question is, do you hear the angels today? Are they ringing in your ear? I'm not asking, do you hear literal voices? We may have to take you to the hospital if you are. My question is, do you believe the angel's message? Are you replaying it in your mind? Do you believe what they said? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The miracle is that you can be among those with whom he is pleased if you run to Christ. I hope you've done that. You know, God was pleased with his son. We read about it multiple times in scripture. One time when he was being baptized, another time when he's on top of a mountain of transfiguration, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am what? Well pleased. And the beauty of salvation is that when you repent of your sin, you turn from that sin and you run to Christ in faith for him to save you, he gives you his righteousness so that now when God looks at you, he sees his son. And what does he say to you? I see my son with whom I am well pleased. I'm well pleased with you. You have my son's righteousness on you. And one day he will accept you into heaven on that basis and that alone. I love that Christmas hymn. We'll close with this. I love that Christmas hymn. It came upon a midnight clear. The writer of that song takes the words of peace that came out of these angels' mouths that night to the lowly shepherds, words that were ultimately for the whole world. And the songwriter just keeps reminding us of them in the song. At the end of every stanza, you'll hear the little reminder. To hear the angels sing, he keeps saying. They're singing. Peace is available in Christ. Hear them, believe them. That's the songwriter's message here. Let me read this hymn to you as we close. It came upon the midnight clear, that glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men from heaven's all-gracious king. The world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. Still through the cloven skies they come, with peaceful wings unfurled, and still their heavenly music floats o'er all the weary world. Above its sad and lowly plains they bend on hovering wing, and ever o'er its babble sounds the blessed angels sing. And ye, beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. O rest 
beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. Last verse. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophets seen of old. When with the ever-circling years shall come the time foretold. When peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling. And the whole world send back the song which now the angels sing. I love that song. We are as Christians, going to live one day in a remade world in which righteousness and peace dwells and we'll be there with the Lord of glory. We will finally see Him. There will be no pain, no tears, no sorrow. All those things, those sufferings, those sorrows, they'll seem like they're a million years ago. And they'll seem so trivial compared to the glory that we will experience in God's presence. And then, finally, the whole world will sing the song of the angels. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen? So take heart. He is coming very soon. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it's been to just examine the manner in which you chose to arrive or you chose to bring your son here. This display of humility is just stunning past anything we can comprehend. You care for the lowly, for the rejected, for the nobodies, and it's so beautiful It's unlike anything we've ever experienced or seen. Lord, thank you for the baby, the Lord Jesus, who came as a lowly baby to be our peace. Thank you that through him you've given us peace both now and in eternity. Lord, may we see your glory in this Advent season. And may we worship you more exuberantly and more joyously as we treasure all these things in our hearts. And it's in our Savior's name we pray. Amen.